0: So one of my wife's constant suggestions to me about my preaching is that I just hit the ground running and start preaching, and that I need to jazz it up a little bit more, (laughs) which is kind of ironic, since my wife, having been married to me for 15 years, knows that in all of my life, but certainly those 15 years... Probably no one has ever used the word "jazzy" to describe anything about me. So, I'm just going to go with my standard mo and hit the ground running. That worked for you, thanks. Um, I I have been amazed as we've been sitting here uh, in worship. I said this at the beginning of the first service. I'm sure I'll say it at the beginning of the third. How? how woven together the fabric of the worship uh, that Walt has led us in has been with the passage that we're going to be in um, this morning. I mean, some, some of these songs have been the soundtrack of my sermon preparation. Some of these passages have been uh, what I've been thinking about as uh, I've been, been working on this sermon. And so I'm just so grateful for the way that the Lord has has woven this together. And I just would love to, to open in prayer and ask that the Lord would take the, the the words of our lips that we've just sung and match them now to the meditations of our hearts on uh, this passage in Mark's gospel. So let's pray. Father, we come to you uh, as people who have sung great truths to ourselves, to one another. Uh, we've read remarkable passages and heard edifying Uh, Phrases and quotations from others. We're thankful for the way that our hearts have already been uplifted this morning. And we do ask now that the meditations of our hearts as we reflect on this passage on the life and ministry of Jesus in Mark chapter eight would match uh, much of what we have already done, Lord. We thank you and ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. Even the catechism question uh, this week on the meaning of sin just fits so well with what we're talking about today. Um, which in particular is is the theme of religious hypocrisy. So it's interesting, uh, many people who suffer from physical blindness would would testify that, that there are a lot of ways in which that is a difficult condition to live. Here's what would be truly dangerous, though. If the person who was physically blind thought he could see. If the physically blind person thought he could actually see, there would be some real danger associated with that. At least the person who knows he's blind knows he needs assistance. When it comes to the matter of spiritual sight, those who think they see Jesus, when in fact they do not, are in danger, Jesus will warn us this morning, of being religious hypocrites. You may recall in Matthew chapter 6 verse 5 that Jesus said, "When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners so that they may be seen by others." Why does Jesus say you must not be like the hypocrites? I think it's because hypocrites construct a self-presentation, a self-perception of righteousness where there is none, and in this case they even leverage Religious practices in the service of their self-deception. I read a quotation uh, from John Piper at a recent seminary graduation where he talked about the danger of hypocrisy this way. He said that hypocrisy is a peculiar kind of lying. A hypocrite is a person for whom lying has gone down into the personality. Hypocrites don't just tell lies, they are lies. Truth has become utterly alien, swept away by deep, deep devotion to self-protection and self-preservation and self-exaltation. We're going to be in Mark chapter 8 this morning, and our passage is a word from the Lord that is meant to warn us, just as he warns the disciples, against the danger of falling into this trap. Jesus wants us to abandon any disposition that we may have to try and leverage him For the sake of our own self-preservation and exaltation. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 8. If you need a Bible, we have ushers in the back that would gladly give you one. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. Uh, Ushers will be happy to pass those out to you. If you don't have a Bible at home, here's one up here. If you don't have a Bible at home, we want you to have them. We want you to keep it. It's our gift to you. Take it. Um, Feed on it. Anybody else need one, raise your hand and it is there for you. Let me, um, l- let me try to just set the context of where we are in this, the flow of Mark's gospel. If you've been with us for a while, you know we're preaching through the, through the book of Mark, and, and it helps for our passage today to have an understanding of where we've been. So two weeks ago, uh, Gerald preached to us out of Mark chapter seven, and the point of the passage was that uncleanliness in sin is determined not by what goes into the mouth but instead by what comes out of the heart. Not by what goes into the mouth, but by instead, uh, or instead by what comes out of the heart. <clears throat> last week, Dave preached to us. He preached two what we might call Gentile inclusion stories. So the grace of the Lord Jesus goes to the Gentiles, and there's some uh, really encouraging receptivity there. Today, that, those two stories that Dave talked about last week are the first two in a series of three Gentile inclusion stories, and we're gonna pick up with the third of those stories, it's the feeding of the 4,000, a miracle that in many ways is similar to Jesus' earlier feeding of the 5,000, which he had done for a Jewish audience and now will do for a Gentile group. But we'll see today as, the, as we progress past the feeding of the 4,000 that on the, on the heels of putting food into Gentile mouths, Jesus, was what, he, what he's really going to deal with in this passage is what's coming out of Pharisee hearts even the disciples' hearts and ours. So let's pick it up in uh, verse chapter one of Mark chapter eight. The feeding of the 4,000. In those days when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way and some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground and he took the seven loaves and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd and they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied, and they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full, and there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away, and immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. Again, this is the third of three Gentile inclusion stories, and Jesus is here multiplying loaves and fish in a Gentile area. Again, this is particularly important because the largely favorable response of the Gentiles, right? They've been with Jesus for three days. They've persisted in following him. They've persisted in listening to him to the point that they're hungry, but they're still following. The Gentile responses, which are largely favorable, largely uh, receptive, are meant to be compared with the hardened hypocrisy of the Pharisees and then the uncomprehending danger of the disciples. Since this passage, this part of the passage is actually prepping where Jesus is going, I just want to make a few quick comments. Uh, First, this passage, the feeding of the 4,000, reminds us once again that uncleanliness is not determined by ethnicity. And it is not determined by what goes into our mouths, but simply by what comes out of one's heart. Attention to the heart. Secondly, and maybe a little bit more interestingly, people have read this passage. It's very common to read this passage with a bit of astonishment that the disciples don't ask Jesus to multiply loaves and fish again. That they don't, that that's not just sort of, right? They've seen the feeding of the 5,000. Why don't they just say, hey, you know, not a lot of food, awful lot of people, do it again, right? When Kenny preached the passage on the feeding of the 5,000 a few weeks ago, he, he used a very important phrase to remind us that in Jesus's earthly life and ministry, he generally walked the path of long, slow obedience. In other words, in the, even in the disciples' experience with Jesus, it seems that he did not ordinarily solve hunger problems in this way. He didn't turn stones to bread to feed himself in the wilderness. And evidently, this was not an everyday kind of activity for Jesus, right? The gospels, they they do present a lot of Jesus's miracles, but we have to remember that they're very condensed presentations, mainly of Jesus's years of public ministry and especially the final week of his life. By and large, then, Jesus walks the long path of slow obedience. That's good news for us. The the life of growth as a disciple of Christ is most often marked by the long, slow march of faithful obedience. Are you there this morning? It's a good place to be. Jesus wants to meet us in that path of slow, sanctifying progress. What's more, Jesus absolutely would not do miracles on demand as the Pharisees themselves are about to insist. We see this in verses 11 through 13. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them. And got into the boat and went to the other side. This, this particular part of the passage is very antagonistic. This is not a friendly dialogue. The Pharisees have come challenging Jesus, right? Demanding things, insisting that Jesus produce signs that he's from God. And Jesus' own refusal to grant the sign is antagonistic in some sense as well. You saw in verse 13, Jesus left them. And I think there's something symbolic even about this being sort of a definitive departure of Jesus from the Pharisees. He's, that, 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 the time is over, right? Done with them. But the issue for the Pharisees isn't really that they need more proof that Jesus can do miracles. They're not, they're not really disbelieving that he has power. They've seen it. They've heard of it. They've witnessed it. The problem isn't that they don't know that he can do miracles, the problem is that they don't know him. You remember way back in Mark chapter three, when some of the scribes approach Jesus and challenge him about his power right, for for, for doing uh, exorcisms, demonic deliverance, what do they say to Jesus? They say your power is demonic in origin. Friends, if you look at Jesus and see Satan, that's blindness. There can be remarkable awareness of facts about Jesus, truths about him, power that he has, miracles that he can do, and be utterly blind to who he is. That's what's going on here. The Pharisees insist that Jesus offer them definitive proof somehow that he's from heaven, that he's from God. And of course, Jesus refuses to be leveraged in the service of their blindness. If they would see, they must repent and not demand. The same thing is true for us. Where are we approaching Jesus with our laundry list of demands and insisting that he do X, Y, or Z in order for us to trust him or follow him? The way of sight is the way of repentance. Repentance not the way of demands. So up to this point, first two of our stories this morning, we've seen Gentile receptivity to Jesus on the one hand. We've seen the hardness of the Pharisees' hearts. And this is all leading up in Mark's presentation to Jesus warning the disciples of the same danger of hypocritical hardness in the face of the Lord. And and we will see the Lord's mercy to them. But before we do, we see the disciples Dullness. Look at verse 14. Now they had forgotten to bring bread. This is, they are the disciples. And they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive Understand. So, on the heels of the previous scene with uh, the Pharisees insisting signs from Jesus, Jesus is now warning the disciples against the very leaven of the Pharisees and Herod. I think there are three things uh, that, if we if we just kind of tease these out very quickly, will help us to understand what's going on in this really one of the climactic aspects of our passage this morning. First, why does Jesus speak about leaven in a negative sense? Why does he speak about leaven in a negative sense? In Israel, every grain offering was to be made without yeast. Yeast very quickly became associated in Israel's life with us as a symbol of uncleanliness and sin, particularly because of its invisible and subtle spreading nature, right? A little bit of yeast can infect the entire lump in a very quick and unseen fashion. So it begins to take on this symbolism of uncleanliness and sin, Maybe more curious, though, is the linking of the Pharisees with Herod. I mean, that's kind of unusual, right? On the surface, maybe we don't think they have an awful lot in common. So why would he call it the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod? When Luke talks about the leaven of the Pharisees, he calls it the leaven of hypocrisy, okay? And I think that Jesus' point In Mark's presentation here, is that regardless of the external appearances of the Pharisees on the one hand and Herod on the other, they both have the same internal leaven, yeast in their hearts, this hidden hypocrisy of trying to leverage things to their own advantage. It's probably more obvious with the Pharisees, right? We've seen in in Mark chapter 7 that they try to manage their righteousness with an emphasis on externals. So much so that in, G, in, in Mark chapter seven, Jesus quotes Isaiah and condemns them saying, they honor, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. That's the uh, obvious uh, emphasis on religious external management. What about Herod? This is the one I, I've, I spent the most time trying to, to gain some traction Here, Mark's the only one who calls it the leaven of Herod. But I think Mark does that on purpose. Because just two chapters prior to this, Mark has given us quite a bit of insight into Herod Antipas. And one of the things that he tells us about Herod in that passage is that Herod has this curious, interesting relationship with John the Baptist, who's calling him out for the sin of having his brother's wife. Herod's got this curious interest uh, in John the Baptist. The passage even tells us that Herod knows that John was a righteous man, and probably Herod believes that John is right in calling out this marriage. Flip back a page to Mark chapter six, maybe two pages. Mark chapter six, verse 18. Listen to this. Mark six, 18. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias, the wife, had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. Very curious interest in this man who is both condemning him, but so evidently a righteous and holy man that he's even willing to hear him call out the sin in his own life. He's got an interest in John the Baptist, but as you know, when push comes to shove, Herod's greatest interest ultimately proves to be self-interest. Executing John, having his head removed from his shoulders the very one who was sent to warn him. I went back and listened. Moyer was the one who preached this passage in Mark 6 a few weeks ago. I went back and listened to parts of Moyer's sermon. Here's how Moyer put this about John the Baptist. He said, Herod knew John the Baptist was right, but said, no, I'm good. I've got this. And in his hypocrisy, he drove right over the cliff, his own destruction the problem with Herod and the Pharisees is not that they don't know something of Jesus's power right the Pharisees we've already seen they they know his power they think he's not from God Herod thinks Jesus is John the Baptist raised to life because he had executed him they know of Jesus they know of his miracles and intrigue their problem is that they don't know him So they don't trust him. And instead, they rely on their own devices that in some ways are very different systems of self-management, right? Some ways, very different systems. But they were systems that they could plan, predict, control, and ultimately do not work. Third, why is Jesus so sharply critical of the disciples? He's really hard on them here, right? I mean, he's critical of them to the point that we get the impression that Jesus thinks the disciples should already know something. There's something glaring that the disciples are missing. What is it? And why does he think that whatever it is they're missing puts them in danger of this same leaven of hypocrisy? Look again at the uh, the questions in verses 17 and 18. Very sharp, very direct. Do you not yet perceive, back in chapter 8, do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Are you blind, but think you see? Having ears, do you not hear? Do you not remember? Very direct. And obviously, surely it's the case that, that the disciples are not grasping that Jesus can provide when provisions are small, but I don't think that's the big issue here. I think the big issue for the disciples in this passage is not just that they don't Understand that Jesus can make a bunch of bread in the boat just like he did on the shores. They don't fully understand Jesus. They're anxious about bread. Jesus is upset that they don't understand clearly who he is. That's the point of the climactic question down in verse 21. Jesus says, Do you not yet understand? And I don't think he's merely saying, Do you not yet understand that I can do this bread thing again? That's not his point. His point in Mark's gospel is, do you still not understand me? This has been a governing question in Mark's presentation of Jesus. Flip back to Mark chapter two, just for a moment with me. Right? One of the things that Mark is doing in his gospel is progressively pulling back the curtain of Jesus's identity, And with one step, and then the next, and then the next, and then the next, revealing the identity of who this Jesus is. So at the end of Jesus' healing the paralytic, in Mark chapter 2, verse 12, he arose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Who is This Jesus. Look at the end of Mark chapter 4, verse 41. Jesus has just calmed the sea and the storm. The disciples were afraid of the storm. They're even more afraid now. Verse 41. They were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And this this question is being progressively answered in Mark's Gospel as we see the revelation of Jesus' uh, power and authority over the elements, over nature over sickness, over demons, ultimately over death, which is where this is going. And not surprisingly, the revelation of how Jesus will exert his power over death is a revelation that will cause the disciples to stumble again. A Messiah who defeats death by death? Not sure we want that. Their issue is that they don't fully understand him. So Jesus rebukes them, not just for not believing in his power to make more bread, but for not knowing him in the way that they should after all the time that they've been with him. But that's the antidote to hypocrisy, isn't it? Jesus is saying the antidote to religious self-managing hypocrisy is knowing me. Because if we know who Jesus really is, we will know that you cannot leverage him to our agenda, On the other hand, if we are trying to leverage him, trying to manipulate him, trying to sprinkle just a little bit of Jesus dust, just enough Jesus dust in our lives to prop up our religious pretense, there's a real genuine sense in which Jesus would say, you don't know me at all. So how can we think a little bit more carefully about the danger of religious hypocrisy? What it entails? How we can know if it's thriving in our hearts and then how we may repent from it. Here's a couple of thoughts. I think that one of the, re- the reasons that religious hypocrisy is viewed as such a deadly reality in the scriptures is because on the one hand, it underestimates the problem of sin, and on the other hand, it overestimates our ability to manage that problem on our own. Let me say that again. It underestimates the problem of sin on the one hand and overestimates our ability to handle that problem on our own. And it, this religious hypocrisy is actually an expression of unbelief, right? If I rely, if I put my trust, my hope more in my own devices, if I feel more safe, self protecting than I feel safe in the arms of Jesus, that's an expression of unbelief, isn't it? It's a dangerous combination of underestimating sin and overestimating my ability to manage without Jesus or, again, with just a little bit of Jesus dust. Sprinkled in, but thankfully Jesus loves his disciples enough to warn them against that danger. Did you know that warnings are expressions of love? Warnings are meant to grab our attention and say, Stop before you run out of road. If I love my children, I will yell at them to stop before they run out into a busy street, right? And that's what Jesus is doing for the disciples and for us here as well. So how do we heed that warning? How do we we hear the warning against religious hypocrisy and first consider whether or not we're sowing the seeds of that in our own life? It's possible for all of us. How do we we detect if it's there? Hopefully this is helpful. Five questions. Five questions to help. This is not a comprehensive diagnosis, right? But five questions that maybe help us See if we see if we find this hiding in our hearts. Number 1, are there places in my life where I am underestimating sin and overestimating my ability to manage? Are there places where I am underestimating sin and overestimating my ability to manage? For example, are there places in our lives <clears throat> where we're dabbling on the periphery of sin, just on the edges? feeling entitled maybe to the fleeting pleasures of sin for just a little bit, saying things like, I'm in control, I can stop this whenever I want. The world, the flesh, and the devil want you to believe that you are in control of your sin when we absolutely aren't. That's someone who's blind but thinks they see. Number two, Are there places in our lives where we want to bargain with God or even demand that he perform a sign of his love for us? Lord, if you solve my financial problems, then I will become involved in children's ministry, start tithing more regularly, read my Bible more, whatever, right? There's two really big problems with the bargaining mindset with God. Number one, it's never enough. Because right now, the problem that you're faced with feels like the biggest problem and you make the bargain. Even if, God, even if God removes that difficulty for a season, there will be another difficulty to come along right after that that will feel like the more preoccupying one. And we'll make the same demand. But here's the second problem, and it's an even, it's an even deeper issue. When we are tempted to bargain with God like that, we are displaying the spectacular blindness of not seeing what our biggest problem really is and that it has been solved by Jesus at the cross. If I think that my financial difficulties, the ones that are on my plate right before me, if I think that's my biggest problem in God, if you just deal with that, then I'll get my, my, my ship uh, in, I'm mixing metaphors here, ship, shape, ship, whatever. You know what I'm saying. <clears throat> then I'll get everything together and do it, Right? live for you as I'll I'll, I'll be a faithful disciple. There, there was some jazz. Was was that jazzy? (coughs) Jazzy? I think I was just stuttering. Uh, (laughs) what, What is that saying? That's failing to see that the biggest problem I have is not my financial deficit, but personal sin before a holy God and that he has decisively handled that on the cross. I should be looking at the cross. Those who have eyes, I should be looking at the cross and say, you've already dealt with my biggest problem. So I'm gonna trust you for this one too. Spectacular blindness by people who think they see. And we all do this. Number three, what does the tenor of your prayer life tell you? What does the tenor of your prayer life tell you about the way you view God, the way you relate to Jesus? Prayer is a lifeline of intimacy and communion with God. Do we pray as though God were the cosmic vending machine, right? Input, prayer, output, what I want, when I want it. That should tell us something, right? That should tell us that there's a cooling in relationship to Jesus, viewing him as someone we can leverage to get our way. Number four, do you find places, do we find places where we are focused on external appearances? Jesus called the Pharisees whitewashed tombs. He said they manage fairly well on the outside, but inside they are rotting. If we manage externals without attending to the heart, Jesus says we're hypocrites. Number five, how do we respond to the news of someone else's sin? Do we respond with sort of holier than thou pretense? Glad I'm not like that person. Turn to Luke 18. Luke 18, verse nine. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt But beat his breast, saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Do we respond to someone else's sin with fundamental thankfulness? I'm not like them. Or are we grieved over sin as one who's in the very same boat? A self-righteous mindset doesn't see that I have no righteousness of my own and that I have no room for boasting. It also fails to see that God rejoices over the repentance when a lost sheep has returned. Turn two pages to the left, Luke 15. Maybe one page, Luke 15. Verse three. So he told him this parable and over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance, friends, it's okay to grieve sin so long as you rejoice with God at repentance. And the tricky thing in the life of a Christian is that sometimes we do both at the very same time. Well, if that's the diagnosis or partial diagnosis of hypocrisy, what does repentance from religious hypocrisy look like? It starts by admitting that without Jesus, we're blind. That is the place to start, right? Right? The recognition and the confession that I thought I saw and I do not. One of the expressions uh, that we read a moment ago from uh, Romans chapter 7 was this line about coming to the end of your rope. Have you done that? Have you come to the end of your rope? Have you learned through trial and failure that self management and self reliance are broken tools? Praise God. What a mercy for knowing they don't work that you're at the end of the rope. If you get that far, we need to forsake the lie of self-management and turn to Jesus. Instead, we know we can't manage the righteousness that is required by personal measures, but the good news of Jesus is that if you don't try to manage, if you trust him more than your own devices, we will be free and forgiven in the most meaningful sense imaginable. Remember the tax collector who wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven, but simply said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. What does Jesus say? This man went home Justified. And from that point forward, we need to be patient with the path of gradual spiritual growth, slow obedience, willingness to be guided at every step along the way by Jesus, relying, trusting, not demanding, being guided by his word. Will you do this for me? Will you write down in your notes if you're taking notes Ephesians one fifteen to twenty-one? We don't have time to look there now. But it's a kind of prayer that's a wonderful prayer for saints in the path of slow obedience to pray. Take a look at that later on. It'll be a blessing to you. In light of all of that, Mark tells one more story to show the superiority of Jesus to all other managing systems. He doesn't leave us The warning is good, right? It's important for us to hear, but he doesn't leave us with the warning. He follows up Jesus' sharp warning of the disciples with one more account of a very unique healing that Jesus does especially for the sake of the disciples. And I think also for us, look at verse 22. uh, Back in Mark 8, verse 22. They came to Bethsaida and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? It's a very familiar question to what Jesus just asked the disciples. What? Do you not understand? Do you see me? And he looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again and he opened his eyes. (coughs) His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly and he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. The key distinctive about this healing is that it is the only place in all of the gospels where healing is granted in two stages, a two-step progressive process, right? Step one, spit, hands, what do you see? Trees walking. Step two, okay, See clearly. It's the only place in all the Gospels we have a miracle of Jesus that is recorded like this. Could Jesus heal this man of his blindness all at once? Absolutely. So what's the point of the progressive healing? It's not for the man. It's for the disciples. And it's for us. The same question. Do you see anything? And in the way that Jesus is progressively pulling back the scales of physical blindness from this man's eyes. For Jesus' disciples, he's progressively pulling back the curtain of spiritual blindness from our eyes too. Isn't that amazing? Didn't you see the amazing, patient, tender, loving mercy of Jesus amidst the blindness, the dullness, the dimness, the forgetfulness of these disciples, which is in our hearts as well. Jesus is a far better savior. Than any of our systems could devise. So that's the message bread for Gentiles, leaven from the Pharisees, dullness from the disciples, and mercy from Jesus. The Pharisees and the disciples both see without seeing to some extent, but in the Lord's mercy, the disciples' sight is redeemed. And our prayer is that it would be so with us as well. Walt's gonna come and, and lead us in some concluding worship, but I want to encourage you to feel the freedom as he leads us in worship to use this time in whatever way seems best to you, in whatever manner the Spirit is prompting you, to pray for the Lord to enlighten the eyes of our heart wherever we may need that perception, because we believe that the preaching moment is not complete until the word is received and applied by the Holy Spirit. So do whatever business you need to with the Lord. Now, if there are grace group shepherds, if you guys could spread around the room, some of you may want to pray with a grace group shepherd or just pray, dive into the word exactly where you are. Whatever it may be, take those matters in your heart to him right now.